I would welcome everyone, if I could, to Iron Show Live! Oh yeah! And we are down here tonight, and I would like to say that we are live! We are in your special guests, I would like to welcome for the first time on The Iron Show, Rabbi Michael Rabbi Mike, he's sitting in his uh, living room, and he's got the baby asleep, so he cannot give us a, um, what's up, and, uh, well, when he told me that, uh, really bummed me out, I was having a tough time with that, and I was deeply offended, and I cried for a while, and then I got mad, and I broke something, and then I started crying again, and I thought, you know what, it's not fair to ask Rabbi Mike because to ruin his credibility and to wake up his baby to go, what's up? Oh yeah, on the Iron Show. No, that wouldn't be fair. I wouldn't want people to think uh, he's strange. So I would just like to uh, ask Rabbi Mike if he would sing the Dalai Lala song with me. <laughs> Come on, Rabbi Mike. La 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 la. La la. Oh, that's so my nice. My wife's rolling her eyes at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah! All right! And I would also like to... I would also like to give a warm what's up to Matthew Miller. Oh, Matthew, are you there? I'm here, Johnny. What's up? Alright! You can give us a what's up, Matt. Come on. What? What's up? Oh, yeah! <laughs> Alright! We are live and we are in your ear. And uh, do we have Paul Kennedy with us tonight? We do not. Paul is out on the road. Looks like he's having trouble getting here. Let me see if I can drag him in. But anyway, I will be working on Paul Kennedy. But uh, in the meantime, I would like, uh, first of all, first of all, I'd like to set this up by um, telling everybody that in our last uh, in our last session, uh, Matthew Miller and I and Paul Kennedy, we were in here and we were uh, down here and we were doing. Uh, we were uh, doing uh, Hidden Prophecies in the Book of Esther, which uh, most people who read the Bible uh, don't really think of books like um, Esther and Ruth, things like that, as prophetical books. Yet, there seems to be much, much prophecy uh, hidden there, or even out in the open within the Book of Esther that we had not previously noticed most of us. So I brought Matthew Miller in last week, and uh, 
we talked about the book of Esther, and uh, Matthew and me went through uh, verses 1 through 12, and he revealed all kinds of uh, prophecy in there, just in the first 12 verses of that book. So, I mean, this could go on for a long time, you know, over the next year. We could do a year of shows on this. And we'll bring Rabbi Mike and Matthew in here as many times as they can possibly stand it. (laughs) Oh, la, 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 la. All right. Rabbi Mike, um, that's what I call him, and uh, his name is Michael Bug, and uh, he's uh, available on the internet at michaelbug.com. That's Actually, B-U-G-G, right? That website I found out. Um, it, the best thing – right now, go to uh, returnofbenjamin.wordpress.com, and I'll hopefully have the uh, michaelbug.com back up shortly. I just found out that there was a bit of an issue going on with that tonight. <laughs> I noticed that too. As long since I maintained it, thought it might be temporary, so I went ahead and gave that out. But you'll be able to find him later on that site, and also um, he has a book. And Michael, uh, Rabbi Mike, uh, he has a book uh, that came out oh almost two years ago, or maybe about two years ago, right? Mm, Just about, yeah. And the name of the book is "When the Stars Fall," and uh, he reveals. he reveals uh, that Revelation is a re- recapitulation and retelling and uh, organization of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And it's a fascinating book. And you can get that online, too. I will have links to that book in the show, note, uh, show notes. And I would uh, advise everybody to go out and buy a copy of Rabbi Mike's book, When the Stars Fall, or... I'll come and hurt you. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah, baby. <laughs> but well, uh, I will actually um, be very shortly putting out a uh, edition of it on Lulu uh, dot com, just because that way I can, uh, I can not have to keep up with the uh, uh, stock and all that. But I'm going to be doing a little bit of editing first because there were some things I figured out as I'm working on my current book. That I'm like, I've got to stick that into the new edition of the uh, When the Stars Fall. So. That should be out uh, in the next uh, couple of months on there. Oh, we got a Paul Kennedy. I'm back up. Oh, yeah, baby. There's a bit of an issue going on with that tonight. <laughs> I noticed that too. As long as I maintained it. thought it might be temporary, so I went ahead and gave that out. Oh, we were getting slapped back. Gnarly slapped back from Paul Kennedy. <laughs> he's on a time delay. We'll add him later when he's decided that he's going to turn off the audio feed from the Fringe Radio Network. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rabbi Mike, we need to uh, have you spend some time here. Uh, introduce yourself to everybody. And uh, I know you've been, for those of you who've listened to me on my other shows, uh, a couple years ago I did a session with Rabbi Mike on uh, Armed with Iron. It's Armed with Iron 7, which will also be, be available in the show notes. So uh, you guys can go download that and listen to that. It's pretty incredible session, one of the best sessions I've ever done in my life, but you are new to the Iron Show proper, and right. why don't you take some time and tell everybody your your whole life story. 
<laughs> okay, let's see here. Sum it up so it doesn't bore the heck out of everyone. Um, I was actually raised in the Christian church, not in the synagogue. Uh, advantages and disadvantages. The main disadvantage is I'm trying to learn Hebrew in my 30s, and that's rough. But um, I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, I think God used that to sort of prepare me for the idea of uh, uh, switching cultures here. And... Uh, um, when I was about 16, I did the usual thing. I sort of fell away. Didn't stop believing. I just wasn't walking. And 21, we had a family crisis. And in the process of this crisis, one of my brothers revealed that he knew the size of the porn stash underneath my bed. And that forced me to, you know, to a decision point. It's like, okay, either Jesus is the real deal, and there's every reason to believe that, or, and I need to completely dedicate myself to him, or he's not. I need to stop pretending and find what is real. And so I got into what people would call apologetics, and I was astounded at the amount of evidence for the resurrection. So rededicated my life to the Lord. Um, I was very blessed with a lot of opportunities after that. I got to do a uh, uh, inter- internship at Ravi Zacharias's ministry. I got resettled in a church. And while I'm in this nice, normal, well-adjusted church, Rabbi Scott Seculo comes over from Beth Adonai, and he puts on a Passover Seder, Passover dinner. And I'm just like, this is incredible. Every single element, even the stuff that's not like directly mentioned in scripture, the stuff that's purely traditional, all points to the Messiah. Why aren't we doing this every year? So that got me into a search that eventually led me uh, to uh, discover a Messianic synagogue called uh, Congregation Beth HaMashiach. And um, Rabbi Gavriel was nice enough to take me under his wing and uh, uh, sort of brought me into the uh, Messianic fold. And... Um, it, that start that was about nine years ago, and it was interesting because I, God first got my attention with the Passover, and the first day I just happened to wander into Beth Hamashiach, happened to be the feast of Sukkot. I didn't even know when it was on the calendar, but when God gets your attention with one feast and brings you home with another feast, that means something. And so, um, ended up uh, going into our yeshiva, uh, which is basically rabbi school after several years. Whoops. And uh, in the process of this, I met my lovely wife, and um, uh, God brought us together there. And it, it's just been an incredible journey. I graduated from yeshiva four years ago, went into a three-year internship, which I just completed in October. Um, and... Uh, it's been it, – I, I really see my part of our focus. Rabbi Gavriel is very focused on building a relationship with the Jewish community. I'm the one who deliberately remembers how to speak Christianese. And because I believe you know, if you're going to build a bridge, it's got to have two sides. And so Rabbi Gavriel very, works very hard in the Jewish community, and that's not to say I don't have my own context there. I certainly do, especially through my in-laws. But uh, I believe that um, God has called me to – uh, do an outreach on the Christian side to help my uh, Sunday brethren to understand a bit more about the essential Jewish foundation of their faith, and thereby to develop a love for the Jewish people that I believe that in the end is going to be very, very significant to God's overall plan in the end times. So, Wow, that is, boy, that's a mouthful. I, don't, I, could, I could dive back in there and ask like a million questions, I think. Um, go for it. I tend to go too fast. So <laughs> it, by all means, if I start rambling too fast, just tell me to shut up and slow down or something like that. <laughs> it's it's okay. Um, but that's that's the 
really, really short, short version. There's obviously a lot of events in my life in between there. I'd like um, to know and- more about what was going on in your mind as you decided to become a rabbi. Um, well, it was interesting. When I was 22, very shortly after coming back into faith, I ended up working with this guy. And it was one of those conversations. You know how it is. Like, you can, you sit there and you talk to someone who's a perfect stranger, and within like five seconds, you know you're in the presence of somebody else filled with the Spirit. You know, it's better than the secret handshake. And it was one of those instances, and he told me, and this was back when I was just barely getting back into my faith. He, he told me, you know, you're going to be a minister. I'm like, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I did, I, I, I think word of well, prophecy. I'm really deeply introverted. I'm not a people person. I didn't see myself going into ministry, but uh, you know, the history sort of played that out. And it's uh, um, it's interesting how God likes to take your expectations. I thought, you know, okay, well then, if I'm going to be a minister, I should go to seminary. God decided to twice bankrupt me to keep me from going to cemetery. Really, you know. <laughs> He did not want me to develop a nice, normal, safe theology. He wanted me to uh, go into, and you'll appreciate this, a what a lot of people consider a fringe area. Yeah, baby. Where, where I'm here, I'm like in the borderlands oh, yeah. of two countries here. You know, it's like I'm, I'm I'm in the gray area with the Jewish community at best, and that's if they're being polite. I'm in <laughs> a borderland on with the Christian community, but it's it's sort of the borderland between the two. And I really believe that one of the things that God is going to accomplish in the next few years, and by few it could be like you know three, it could be thirty, is going. You're going to see a large segment of the Christian Church really draw close to the Jewish people. And once the Jewish people got off their sh- over their shock, it's. I think there will be reciprocation there. It, it's right now you've got a lot of history there. But you're also going to see a larger part of the Christian community go into what's politically expedient instead. And that's actually uh, where I, I like to focus on. It's like I want to draw as many of my Sunday brethren as possible. It's like, look, God has reestablished Israel in the land. He has done a resurrection in our days. You know, We Amen. need to praise him for that yes. and, and participate in this wonderful miracle that he's done. So yes, you know, and most of the church, most of the church would uh, definitely back Israel, no matter what. I mean, yeah, I mean, we know, we all know that Israel's not perfect, and we know that they've done some underhanded things. But haven't we all, especially America? So I mean, but as as far as the church is concerned, I know from my very my very early formation in the mid '80s, when I was saved in a snakebite Pentecostal church, uh, <laughs> 1985. Immediately, I heard, wow. you know, yeah. Immediately, I I was hearing support for Israel. I mean, everybody in that church. I know it's very strong from then all the way till now, and before that in the assemblies of God. And I know that uh, the Lutherans, and I know the Baptists, I know all your major denominations are. You know, in support of Israel, that's why uh, one of the major reasons why the U.S. is in support of Israel, uh, aside from the fact that they they secretly know that they have the world's largest oil supply in the world. But uh, <laughs> I would but, like to believe that we've got people in charge who are actually smart enough to drain the oil out of the Arabs and then switch over to our resources in Canada's and Israel's. What do you think? I would like to think that we have people in charge that are that smart. Oh yeah, what do you think they're doing? <laughs> 
Oh yeah, that's uh yeah, that's something my grandfather was a very big conspiracy nut. I mean, back to, you know, when I was a little kid in the 60s, mm-hmm. he used to sit me on his knee and tell me about the 19 men who secretly rule the world. And mm-hmm. uh so, yeah, I mean, you know, I all learned the- about that on my own when I was way older. I didn't have anyone to uh, teach me that. I I got thrown headlong into meeting people with uh MPD. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, practically out of the gate, I just started a little Bible study and gotten some friends together, and we started encountering people with uh, uh, satanic ritually induced uh, multiple personality disorder. And, you know, you know, tried to do the thing of reaching out and helping some of them. And, you know, we ended up in spiritual warfare like we didn't, we did not understand what was going on at the time. Um, you know, it, it's, Kind of funny. It's like I, I would think Russ Dizdar was a nut if I hadn't actually encountered exactly what he talks about there. So it, it's it, there is just seems to be a whole lot of stuff that's coming together really, really fast on that. And so having met the victims of the conspiracy, I believe completely in conspiracy theories. Not every theory, but there are plenty of them I do believe in um, that I, just from personal encounters and that kind of thing. So I, I kind of wish I'd had somebody to uh, guide me through a little bit better on that front. Now. This MPD, I, I have never heard of that. What's up? <laughs> Sorry, Rabbi Mike, I couldn't resist. Quiet, Johnny, and Johnny here. We need to reintegrate your personalities here. I don't have MPD. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I am totally with you on that. You know, uh, I have come from the same place as you do as far as, you know, uh, fringe conspiracy, Christian conspiracy and all that. I'm just listening to you going, oh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Especially, you, you know, Dr. Rest- Heiser's, new, uh, Dr. Heiser's novel, The Facade. I have never read it. Um, I'm waiting oh, for an audio version. And then you out. need to go read his bibliography. I, I love a novel that comes with a bibliography. Uh, it is incredible. I, I'm about three quarters of the way through it now, and I'm sitting there going, wow. I, I came to a, a lot of these same conclusions on my own. And so to find someone of his stature, uh, you know, essentially, I don't know if I'd call it confirming it, but you know, agreeing in, in enough of the same direction, it's just like, okay, maybe I'm not completely off my nut after all. You know, no, no, oh no. I mean, I even remember back in the '80s, you know, 1985. Um, I asked my mentor, uh, Louis Knutson. He's the guy who led me to Jesus in that snakebite Pentecostal church. He was a fire-breathing, mean old Pentecostal guy. He used to to witness to people. He used to say, "Let me borrow your lighter," and they'd say, "Okay, Louis," and and he'd uh, grab their lighter and then he'd light their finger on fire. Ah, ah, Louis, what are you doing? He goes, "How'd you like to feel that burning?" in hell for all eternity <laughs> but uh, I, I asked him one day we're sitting outside drinking coffee and I said hey Louie what about the aliens don't you believe in the aliens He's he just scowls at me and he goes what you mean space aliens <laughs> I said yeah yeah <laughs> and he starts laughing at me oh John and then he you know I, I kind of was all bummed out because Louis believed in like everything, you know, all the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and healing and demons and everything. I'm sure he believed in aliens, you know, and uh, I was a newbie, so I didn't know. And he looked at me and then I could see this look of compassion come over because, you know, he could I could tell you could tell that he'd hurt my feelings. I saw that in his eyes. He goes, oh, John. But, uh, I asked him 
one day worth it. Oh, we've got a live feed coming back. So anyway, um, so so anyway, he goes. Uh, he had this ancient King James Bible. It was like three, four hundred years old, passed Whoa. down through his family. And he nice. showed me this passage that talked about God um, ruling all worlds or even other worlds. And I've never found that in any other Bible. But he goes, <laughs> I remember him saying, anyway, if they're space aliens, there they are, Johnny. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so I've, I've never been able to find that passage. Maybe, does that sound familiar to you, Matthew Miller? Yes, it does. It sounds very familiar to me. Really? Not yeah. that that has anything to do I'm with uh, Purim, but no, not a thing. But you know, this is kind of a fun way to go off tangent in the beginning, isn't it? <laughs> the Iron uh, Show has no. I think rails. I know that one. Let's see if I can find it. Really, you do? Really, you guys know where that I'm, might be, huh? I've never I been able. I think to find I might. I just. I'm not going to spend too much time looking for it. I may try to find it for you for a future show and uh, kick it around. But yeah, uh, no, I don't have it highlighted if it is in this passage. So how do you feel I, I about the aliens? That so I don't derail the show. How do you feel about the aliens, Matthew? What about the moon men? What about them? <laughs> this is moon man alpha. Uh, yeah, um, that's just one of their. Disguises, uh, if you get into the mythological historical research, uh, you come to find out that at one time they were – well, um, at one point in time, they disguised themselves as little people, leprechauns, and they would take you to their cave. Um, now they just put on a, a different a disguise, and they take you to their ship. Uh, so You've read the Shark terrible- Filet, haven't you? Excuse me? I said you've read Jacques Filet, haven't you? Yes, extensively. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, yes. exactly. <laughs> what was it? Uh, Passport to Magnolia, I think it's called? Yes. That's, 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 that's where he really went into that whole thing, and I was just like, wow, this is secular researchers. I'm right there with you. Well, um, I have uh, spent, well, thousands of man hours going through the original mythologies. I mean, even to the point where... Uh, you know, the priest that was having conversations with wolves. Uh, I've been through the original documents, the original stories. Hmm. Uh, so when you do that, uh, you realize that the game has always been the same. Exactly. Um, they they take on a form. Uh, of course, at one time it was fairies, and then now we see the, uh, the orbs or the uh, strobe lights. Um, mm-hmm. But they've done this throughout the ages, and it's just now in these end times they have all agreed to take the guise of aliens. Uh, this uh, precipitates uh, their ability to manipulate us on a whole uh, because everybody needs to understand that uh, the prince of Greece will forever try to get dominion over the prince of Persia, and the prince of Persia will always try to get dominion over the prince of uh, Seattle, Washington. That's how this game is played, mm-hmm. just like the exactly. Bible says. And and everybody needs to understand that when God uh, sets things up, okay, like when he set up the Persian kingdom, what that meant was uh, was that a Leviathan was brought into the mix, as the book of Asaph explains, that what took place during the Exodus was actually the subjugation of these celestial entities, and they were put underneath one head. Okay, so understand that 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 uh, if if the prince of uh, Kentucky 
if he gets up enough power and he is able to conquer uh, the prince of Louisiana, you need to understand that in the heavenly realms he will be able to exercise dominion over that prince. They've been playing this game for a very long time, and uh, Satan, of course, uses this to his advantage uh, because if they are forever bickering and envying one another, they, they would never, nor they could ever, but understand this. That he knows through this manipulation that they will never try to usurp his place. So um, it's an old game. It's the same game, and we will continue to play it until, well, it's the end game, shall we say. Uh, Mike Heiser uh, does not uh, negate the possibility, however remote, that there may actually be space aliens real ones right i know that he that's probably he says that according to what he's researched there really isn't anything in the scriptures that would uh speak against the possibility of that it just doesn't seem to speak on it at all Mm -hmm. dr who ross uh over at reasons believe has uh pointed out that at the very least the you have to have a certain kind of star to have to have the kind of stability that uh, provides for life on a planet over the long term, and it, we don't see another star with the same kind of metallicity as our sun anywhere within a thousand light year radius. We don't actually see it beyond that, but we know there's not one within a thousand light year radius. So, if there's an alien race out there, it's pretty far out there. It's not like it's over in Alpha Centauri where they only have to come over four light years to meet us. Um, also, the kind of galaxy that uh, maintains its spiral arms in a very stable fashion which is necessary for you know uh life over the long term not to, so your star is not coming too close to another star or whatever um is also kind of unique our our galaxy is actually fed by two dwarf galaxies that feed just the right number of stars in to maintain its shape and to maintain its stability and to maintain the stability of our orbit we don't see any other galaxy like that there may well be aliens in the universe but so far um particularly for those who are uh, it's from a secular evolutionary perspective, they got no hope of finding one. God can put him wherever he wants to, but it, it doesn't look like there's anyone really close to us. And that's probably deliberate. If God created our life in other worlds, I've got no problem with that idea. I, don't, I think he's deliberately separated us so we won't meet until all of us get over our immature phase and uh, have our redemption play out. Like, uh, you know, you're talking about like, <laughs> Michio Kaku, he says, well, we need to get to the type, you know, type one civilization where right now we're at type zero. Not right. to uh, not to preach Michio Kaku, the Antichrist, but... Uh... <laughs> call him the Antichrist. He's a bit flaky and definitely uh, likes to uh, pull people away from the uh, biblical view. But, I mean, same thing with um, uh, Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan. It's like, you know, they're they're all recognizing that the human condition is hopelessly flawed, that we're really messing up this planet really fast, that we are our technological ability is outstripping our wisdom, and they're looking for aliens to come save us. It's like, dudes, you know, you're recognizing that we need an tr- outside transcendent force to save us. We have one. You may not Amen. like what he has to tell you about yourself, but we have one, you know. Amen. So. I made you quiet. Sorry. <laughs> I made Rabbi Mike quiet. That's no good. <laughs> okay. I was only saying amen. Amen, brother. 
<laughs> I talk too much. So no, I you to don't. Sure that I listen to others. No, you don't. Not at all. I could sit here and listen to you forever. Um, we can find a lot of your teachings if we want to listen to you, if we like listening to you, which I do, at Cyber Synagogue. Um, I know you've led me to a few pretty valuable teachings there, especially lately. Um, so uh, how do we get to that exactly? Uh, it's cyber-synagogue, if you can spell those two words, you're good to go, dot com. Or if you're having trouble finding it, there, C-B-H-M, congregationbethhamashiach.org, and then you can find the link there, and uh, look for the morning service. Now, because we ended up being a little bit too small to handle two services, we actually folded the services together, so I'm not producing as new, much new stuff there. I've got some projects in the work. Um, I'm giving some thought to doing an online midweek Bible study because we've got a lot of members that have to come a long way. You know, there aren't that many Messianic synagogues, so they come a long way, and I want to come up with a way that they can participate in a midweek thing. Um, and I'm also teaching right now the uh, bar mitzvah class, you know, preparing uh, young people for their responsibilities um, as uh, spiritual adults. Uh, bar mitzvahs, when a boy turns 13 or a girl turns 12, they are considered, um, that's like the age of accountability. Right. And so teach them leading into that, uh, kind of like confirmation in some uh, Christian denominations, so that they know what their responsibilities are. And I just recently took that over. So um, I'm focusing on getting the curriculum for that together. Um, it got, it, um, I won't say it got thrown at me, but it, it, I was asked to take over just like last month, and I've got till right after Passover to have my ducks in a row to get this thing going. So I've, I'm focusing on that. I'm working out, probably going to do something Skype-based, and it may just be like a, uh, uh, you know, a, um, a podcast type deal that with a, you know, some level of participation and go with that. And frankly, I may just make some YouTube videos. Um, I'm planning oh, on yeah. possibly making some out of my uh, old teachings and actually letting people see the screen, the uh, uh, slides I was using as I was teaching, making it a bit easier to follow along and then adding on to it from there. Yeah, you could just have yourself there too because you are so pretty. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Mike, he's a good-looking guy. You could make some good YouTube videos, as as Matthew Miller is, as well. So, uh, yeah, Matthew Miller makes YouTube videos at uh, youtube.com slash the End Time Tribune. And there's a lot of Matthew Miller stuff. Um, Rabbi Mike does not know about Matthew Miller. Matthew Miller, would you like to uh, tell your story here real quick? Uh, sure. I'm the lowest guy on the totem pole. Uh, no, I am. Uh, let me see. What, what what else can I say? Uh, <laughs> born and raised and bred in the church. Don't know anything else. Uh, I was uh, circumcised and christened on the eighth day. Um, All right. Wrote the law uh, before I was 12. Uh, actually, I had gotten quite a lot through the prophets as well by that time. But at any rate, um, let's see. That's That's just about me. Um, I'm really pretty normal. I'm nothing extraordinary at all. Uh, I just spend 95% of my time in the old bibliodiciacy. That's what I know. Uh, that, that's that's what I am. I eternally am trying to be good for something. Uh, so I – oh, I deal with uh, lots of people every week um, – on a very personal level, uh, locally, I know all of the pastors that um, I have stopped as of late going to uh, the Pastors Association uh, meetings because, uh, 
Well, unfortunately, uh, me and my wife have stopped going to church. Uh, I went to church three times a week my whole life until about a year ago, and I heard my last sermon. Uh, on the way home, my wife refused to go back to, to the church uh, because the sermon was on how you can commit suicide and still go to heaven if you've lost your job or you're uh, invalid in some way. Oh, nice. So, uh, so that was it for us. Uh, so since that time, we have actually not been to church, and I've really had a hard time with life because that that has been my life. But uh, the Lord, he is good, and I know I am not supposed to mingle myself with what is unclean. And by the living God, I won't do that thing. So I uh, hear as of late, um, like Johnny said, I've been doing lots of stuff uh on YouTube, and all those videos are also available on iTunes. You can watch those videos on iTunes. Uh, yesterday, I just did a very good interview with uh, Pepe Escobar, a world-renowned uh, journalist. And uh, I just do what the good Lord would have me do. That's that's pretty well it. Nothing special. Um, like I said, if you want to know who is the lowest guy on the totem pole, that would be me. <laughs> Yes, and for myself, Mama dropped me when I was a baby. So <laughs> I don't think you're that bad, John. <laughs> and then I woke up on the Iron Show. Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, yeah. If anybody wants to hear my story, it's on like Iron Show Ten, I think, or Iron Show Eleven. You can go back to IronShow dot com and listen to my whole story. But or Canary Cry Radio. Uh, my session on Canary Cry Radio number 26, I tell most of my stories. So anyway, um, we were hanging out last week in the book of Esther. Matthew Miller was telling me about uh, prophecies that he sees there. And uh, I remember um, here a few days ago, um, Rabbi Mike was asking me, uh, hey, uh, I don't know this Matthew Miller guy. And I was like, well... I go, oh, well, he's a prophecy expert and all this stuff. And uh, he goes, uh, I said, did you get a chance to listen to the Iron Show? And he, he was too busy. He's constantly writing articles and stuff. So I said, well, so I thought, well, I could just kind of tell you shortly, you know, what we talked about. And we went through uh, uh, the book of Esther, uh, verses 1 through 12. And uh, I remember uh, uh, not, uh, 10, 11, 12 the most. But uh, Rabbi Mike asked me, he says, who does Matthew think uh, um, uh, Queen – I can't say her name now. Vashti. <laughs> Queen Vashti is. And I said, well, let me think. Uh, Matthew thinks that – I think Matthew was alluding to them being the heathen, the children of disobedience. And uh, Rabbi Mike says, I'm going to like this Matthew Miller guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, everybody needs to figure out that we're not talking about – Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that time has passed, even as is clearly <laughs> laid out in Esther. We're dealing with the Tepcon Epigalia as of right now. You are either the seed of the promise or you're not, and you better come to grips with that. And uh, that's why the Lord Jesus Christ came. That's why he is the king, and that shall never change. And people need to understand that there was a time, there was a time when a woman had been appointed even as Eve had been appointed. 
That time came, and that time went. From this point forward, since the Lord Jesus Christ did raise from the dead, and he did, in fact, ascend into the right hand of the Father, none of that stuff matters. Now you're either the seed of the promise, or you are not. You're going to find yourself a child of Hagar, a child of Sarah, or a child of Keturah. And it's that way, it's no other way, and it's pretty well that simple. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. I don't know exactly where to take this. I, mm, Rabbi Mike, how about, how about we this? give it, so, give us uh, a brief over, I don't know, where do we start? You start us out. You start us out. Uh, well, let's hear. Um, I can think of a couple ways to tackle this. One is we could sort of go over the book um, for people that aren't familiar with it. But I think that most people who are watching this show or listening to this show are going to be familiar enough with it that uh, we don't really need to do the overview of the events. Uh, it sounds like we could just jump straight into the typology here. Um, the typology of Esther is really fascinating because uh, Esther could almost be a messianic type, except for the fact that she's a woman because she, uh, it, it, you know, the, her, her people are in trouble. They're about to be wiped out by the enemy, and you know she is prevailed upon to intercede for them. But if she goes before the king without being summoned, her life is forfeit. So she finds out about this whole plot and is prevailed upon on Passover. And it's three days later, after fasting for three days, that she goes before the king to intercede for her people. And so you know you could see a parallel with that with uh, with Yeshua or Jesus, if you prefer. uh, very much in the same way that you know he died on Passover, um, but was given his life back on the third day, just as Esther, you know, considered herself as good as dead on Passover and has given her life back on the third day. But that would be, if so, that's the only time a woman is used as a messianic type in Scripture. And I think there's something else going on here. So I started looking at Mordecai, and Mordecai's kind of fascinating because. As he refuses to bow down to Haman, Haman is obviously very much a, a, a Satan figure in, the, in this whole thing. He refuses to bow down to Haman, so Haman wants to destroy him. So Haman builds, almost every translation says a gallows, but the actual Hebrew word there is eitz, which means a tree. And a lot of people don't realize the Romans weren't the ones who invented crucifixion. No, the, the Jews Persians did. Were. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Talked over you. I'm yeah, sorry. The yeah, the Jews did. Uh, cur- uh, Isaiah curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Um, that's what they used to do to the worst criminals, and they would strip them naked and nail them to a tree. Am I lying? Am I wrong? Uh, Jews never nailed anyone to trees. The Persians oh. actually had pers- uh, crucifixion. They didn't use nails. They would just tie the person to uh, a stake or a, a cross tree or something like that to basically leave them exposed to the elements in public, naked, uh, thoroughly shamed, all honor stripped from them until they died. And so when Haman's talking about wanting to build a gallows or a tree 75 feet tall for, for Mordecai, it is that he wants Mordecai's shame and degradation witnessed by the entire city. Okay? He wants everyone to be able to see this, uh, if you will, across. And it's very interesting because the very instrument he means to kill Mordecai with is his own undoing. You know, when At the end, of course, when the king finds out Esther's Jewish – um, and you know he finds out that what Haman was planning on doing to the man who saved the king's life, he ha- he says, "Let Haman hang on his own tree." In the same way, when Yeshua went to that cross, okay, he the adversary thought he was getting rid of his adversary, but the very instrument 
by which he meant to destroy Yeshua was actually his own undoing. So I actually tend to think of Mordecai as being your messianic type in this. Uh, What do you think, Matthew? Do you think I'm completely off on that one? Oh, no, sir. Uh, I I could certainly uh, wholeheartedly agree with you with that, but we also need to realize that uh, what you said about Christ is doubly true. And just like uh, we know that the Bible loudly proclaims that he is the new Adam. And what mm-hmm. we're really talking about here, uh, the woman, the technon epigalia, is actually a rib that has been extracted from the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of creation. And his bride shall be fashioned from that rib, which is the children of the promise. Uh, You're tying so, that into the uh, piercing of his side? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and course, the, the Hebrew uh, doesn't actually mean rib; it means side. Um, it's as if God took a whole uh, being that was not male or female and divided, is the way the rabbis visualize it. But if you want to go with the rib for the typology, I can, I can definitely go for that. I like that, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. Well, we we also have uh, hints. Well, well, there, I, I could I could go on and on and on from right here, uh, but uh, definitely. Uh, if you're going to talk about Esther, we we got to take time out to talk about Mordecai. So uh, the last show, we were going just by the verses. So uh, okay. definitely, I mean, we can we can see all different types of uh, shapes and shadows through Mordecai. I mean, that is – well, you're talking 50 percent of the orchestration was through mm-hmm. Mordecai. Uh Right. The the woman was taking instruction from Mordecai. Um, right. So this, of course, is the perfect type and shadow for me, uh, for the Holy right. Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that foreshadows to us what is to come, as clearly dictated in the book of John. So And Esther um, is actually a good type for Yeshua's bride, even though in this case right. it, it's Mordecai's kinsman, because, of course, Yeshua's disciples did fast for the three days he was in the grave. And when he was given his life back, it was as if we were given our life back, too. Amen. All right. Amen. May so it be got, doubly so. So we've got sort of our overview here. We've got Esther as a type of the bride. Mordecai as a type of Messiah. Um, Xerxes as a type of uh, the Holy One. Um, the although <laughs> Xerxes' actual personality is almost too jerkish, I almost feel bad for you know pointing to that. You've got Vashti as the disobedient one, and Haman, of course, as the adversary. And it's interesting that Haman had ten sons. And, of course, the adversary has his ten kings at the end. So uh, are we uh, pretty much on board with sort of the overarching uh, um, archetypes here? And then we, and then, if we are, we can go in and start going verse by verse with those. Oh, sure. we can. I can, I can follow you anywhere you want to go. Uh, cool. Uh, that's really yeah. cool, My the ten thing kings. Is, I'm sorry, Johnny. Oh, the ten <laughs> kings in Revelation. I mean, that's really cool because, I mean, you've really painted a good picture uh, portraying uh, Haman as, you know, as Satan. I mean, and especially when you said, you know, the um, – the the instrument of uh, death that he had designed for Mordecai became his undoing, just like Satan, the instrument of Jesus' death, uh, became Satan's undoing. But uh, yeah, Haman having ten sons, like the ten kings in the book of Revelation, wow. So let me, let me get out of the way. I'm going to uh, get my laptop and go into the chat room and take a look and let you guys go at it. Take her away, Rabbi. 
Okay. Um, so we've got sort of uh, my my usual thing is I like to sort of do the the over the overarching thing and then and then having sort of set the stage. That's when I like to zoom in. So, um, uh, Matthew, uh, are you familiar with the uh, where God's name is encoded in the Book of Esther? Because because you got he's got up to like right well, before the first encoding there. Well, <clears throat> are you talking about the encoding in five uh, four? Uh, uh, I probably know. Let's see here. I need to go double check my verses. Let's see here. No, it's uh, yeah. There's one in five four. There's another one in five thirteen. But there's one in uh, chapter one verse twenty that uh, we'll be uh, hitting pretty soon. It's actually encoded four different places. Um, Oh, it's only four. I I know of more times than that. But I, I know uh, of four specifically. Uh, if you know a fifth one or, or more than that, um, awesome. Um, to give the background for because now we're talking uh, with and might be losing someone here. All right. Uh, for those who've not really taken time to read the Book of Esther, you may notice that you don't find the word "the Lord" with the small caps anywhere in it, and that's because God's uh, true name, which um, I personally do not speak. Um, whoops! I hear a baby in the background. Sarah will get him. Um, God's true name um, does not appear anywhere in the Hebrew text, and therefore it doesn't appear in any of the translations. But there are at least four places, and Matthew apparently knows uh, a couple more, where it appears in acrostics. It appears encoded. And that was actually probably deliberate on the part of the authors, because uh, this was a book that was going to be published in the Persian Empire, was going to be published among pagans, and we didn't want pagans to be using the name of God uh, in an unworthy manner. Um, but the places where it shows up are always very significant to the plot. So it's like, it's like God's hand is invisibly happening through the book of Esther. You know, it's, it's kind of like we experience in our lives where we don't, um, we don't always see the hand of God. We don't see, you know, hail and fire mixed with blood. We don't see frogs, but we nevertheless can see the hidden hand of God in our lives almost in retrospect sometime. And that's really one of the lessons in the book of Esther. I'd like uh, to interrupt okay. you for a second. Um, sure. uh, you cannot speak na- uh, God's real name because you're Jewish uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. M- I myself am nothing more than a Canaanite dog that uh, licks the, dr- the crumbs that fall from his master's mm-hmm. table. So you I will tell everybody it is – So don't put yourself down on that. So. It is uh, Yahweh for those who don't know what he was talking about. That's the name that that the Jews really don't speak. And that out of – well, there's a lot of reasons for that we could probably go into later. But um, that's how we say it in English. It's not really how you pronounce it, but that is yeah, the name for – at least one syllable there. Yeah, Yahweh or something like that. It's uh, uh, It means I, I am. Doesn't it mean I am? Yeshua never did. If you look at the New Testament, Yeshua never speaks the God's holiest name that's recorded. His disciples didn't see fit to re- render it in uh, Greek lettering, and I'm not going to be above my master or his closest apostles. Oh, okay. Um, so for that reason, I, I don't speak God's name, and uh, you know, if someone uh, uh, does so, I'm not going to uh, you know fight with them over it. It's just you know, in my particular case, it's like you know, 
I'm going to follow the example of my master on this. If the Son of God himself didn't use God's holiest name, instead used things like heaven, God, Father, etc., then I'm going to follow his example on that. I just wanted to say it for clarity so people knew what we were sure. talking about. You know, there's plenty of people that are saying it now, you know, people in the Hebrew Roots movement and the black Israelites and all those guys. They That's all they say all day. So I just want everybody yeah. to know that's what we were <laughs> talking about. Anyway, go ahead. Well, it, that's actually one of those areas where I would disagree with certain elements. It, the Messianic movement's more like a spectrum of little mini movements, and like you said, you've got the Hebrew roots. Uh, you've got a Hebrew roots Christianity there. Um, you've got the Black Israelites, which I've had run-ins with before, um, and uh, and various other groups and such. But again, it just comes down to you know, if someone's going to go around saying God's name, particularly saying that you should, I'm going to be like, okay, show me where Jesus, Yeshua, Yahshua, however you feel like pronouncing his name did himself and nobody can they find a couple of, well here he said i am okay but i am in hebrew is aya it's not the name uh god's holiest name it's the tetragrammaton the four-lettered name um i'm going to spell it out here for, because it uh comes up in, in the encoding but it's spelled with a yod which is like a y a hey which is like an h a vav which could be a v an o or a u depending on the context and another h um, and our hay, and we don't we do not know which vowels are associated with it. Although we can infer them, uh, we don't know whether that vav is supposed to be pronounced as a v sound or an o sound. Um, it was originally used as a v, but the it was used sort of as a fill and vowel for o and u later on. Um, and so the earliest name the earliest names where we know the pronunciation that it shows up like for example levi david and so forth it's pronounced as a v but even that is a matter of trying to figure it out from other texts it, it, it just is a bit of a mess so not knowing the correct pronunciation although i have my suspicion about it uh and following the example of my master i myself don't speak it so if i just say the name or in hebrew hashem then understand I'm referring to God's holiest name on that one, and hopefully that'll keep anyone from being confused as the conversation continues. Oh, silence! <laughs> I was down here plugging my laptop. I was promising to be quiet. I was getting out of your way. <laughs> but oh no, dead air. Johnny will step in. So, uh, yeah. So now we all kind of know what you were talking about there. And... Um, uh, Rabbi Mike and Matthew Miller were talking about places where that name is hidden in the book of Esther. So I guess we'll take it back there. Okay. You guys got up to uh, verse 19 in your last session? No, we went to 12. 12. Okay. Well, in that case, let's just keep on going. And when we get to verse 20, we'll uh, find the first uh, location. Uh, Matthew, did you, uh, I don't want to like you know, roll over your steamroller or anything like that. You want to just uh, pick up and uh, go and I'll, uh, you know, sort of follow your rhythm here? Well, uh, sure. It is always proper uh, for one to read and one to give commentary, is it not? <laughs> that works. Amen. We'll take tur- Amen. We'll take turns reading and giving commentary then. Uh, which uh, translation would you like me to read out of? Um, I've got my uh, New American Standard in front of me. It's my wide margin Bible with my notes in it, so it's kind of the one I go. I've got an art scroll Tanakh here to pull out the Hebrew, and I've got okay. my E sort up, so I can pretty much go with any translation you like. Well, if if the one you got on hand there is your uh, NSAB, uh, we'll rock and roll with that if that's fine with Johnny. 
Um, I see no reason why we can't use that. Um, oh, yeah. Most people today, uh, you know, if if they are lost, uh, that old English kind of uh, can be confusing. So this is this is well with me. We'll just start at uh, 13, and I shall read that next stanza, which continues on, ladies and gentlemen, to verse 20 in the very first chapter of the book of Esther. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Amatha, Tarshishis, Merez, Maresina, Memukan, and the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the king, as a hearse delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princes, Memukan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Azazurus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Azazurus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Azazurus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. There you go. All right, and that brings us to a couple of things, actually, that I wanted to hit, but I'll go ahead and since uh, I brought the Hebrew, uh, the first place where God's name appears in the acrostics uh, is in the phrase, uh, all women will give honor to their husbands, uh, which is, he vechol hanashim yitnu. You'll have to pardon me, I stumble a little bit with my uh, uh, Hebrew re- reading it here. Um, which, if you look at that, the first letter of each of those words spells the name of God if you read it backwards. And the reason, according to tradition, that it appears backwards in that particular section is because God here is turning back the plans of man. Vashti thought to uh, seize a honor and to seize an independence that was not hers. And so God there moves the king's counselors to turn back Vashti's plan. We're going to see that same uh, turning back and that same reverse uh, place where God's name is written in reverse later when we see him turning back the uh, plans of Haman. Um, but uh, there was another phrase there that I, I found very interesting when I was uh, doing my study on this. It's like, when the king said to the wise men who understood the times... I just got curious. I went looking to see where else that appeared in Scripture, and there was only one place, and that was in 
First Chronicles 12.32, where it talks about the sons of Iskar gathering to David when he's establishing his kingdom. And it says that they were those who understood the times and what had to be done. And so I'm to, whenever I find a phrase that, only pe- that you would think appears, would appear often in Scripture, but only appears in a couple places, I always wonder, okay, what is the connection there? Any thoughts on that, Matthew? Well, uh, certainly uh, you would have to see uh, correlations there, especially since how it's backwards. Uh, mm-hmm. It and woman will uh, is those words in Hebrews, ladies and gentlemen. So mm-hmm. uh, in this being the first place that it's encoded in reverse, boy, you can see what is to come all over that. Uh, it's actually enough to boggle your mind. Uh, you know, there's a couple of words that we also read there, and in the Hebrew, uh, those words are very uh, tricky. That uh, one that you uh, heard me say, the one that was speaking, uh, Mamkur, mm-hmm. uh, in the original Hebrew text, that's actually twice. It's actually mm-hmm. repeated twice. It's misspelled uh, in one time there. And Right there, everybody needs to realize this, that the Tetragrammaton, it equals 26. And when you're mm-hmm. reading Hebrew, you're looking at numbers. Remember, That's it's, right. it's, like, it's like Roman numerals. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, understand this, that it's encoded right there, especially by the one that's talking. Those two misspellings, they both equal 156. And you're going to have to understand this, that when you take... Uh, those you just take a simple calculator if you would like to. Uh, you have to understand that. Well, twenty six goes into one of those six times, and of course, when you put one fifty six twice, that's twelve times. So right here, God has encoded to you that in what is to come, you're looking at well, like I was mentioning earlier, um, the 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 woman being in an extracted rib from the king. That's going to be made up of 12 disciples. So looking into this text, understand this, that if you know what you're looking at, you would have known exactly why it was that he chose 12 disciples. You could see that coming. That had to be done here in the text. So that's a, well, plus, it's, it's an amazing si- thing. Mm-hmm. Well, plus, plus if the disciples are supposed to indeed be the beginning of a uh, – uh, revived Israel, then it makes sense you'd need one for each uh, thing. And that's actually, it, that actually connects nicely with the uh, uh, remez, the hint by this phrase, uh, men who understood the times. Because when uh, the other place that appears, it's David, right after Saul has died, he's, try, he's trying to gather the tribes of Israel, which are scattered at that time by the Philistines. And so he's calling the men to himself. And the men of Iskar are specifically, you know, they actually send more leaders. It doesn't name how many uh, uh, people can, that came, but 200 princes of Iskar came, knowing what kind of times they're in and what needed to be done. And in the same way, so when we're looking at this, you know, if Ashti is, uh, in a sense, the unfaithful of Israel, then you've got a, and you've got a, a disposing of there. It's like an, in fact, is unfaithful Jerusalem. Nevertheless, even here, you've got the hint that David, the son of David, would still have his men who understood the times and were still prepared and still prepared a way for a new queen to uh, come up so that the, so that the uh, queen seat would not be left uh, uh, empty. Amen. Good stuff. Uh, very good stuff. 
I like your uh, stuff too. I, I've actually realized uh, I was looking at the Intrime Tribune uh, thing on uh, YouTube. And while I've not pursued everything on there, I've oh. actually seen uh, a few of your videos, and I, I really enjoy them a lot. You've got some uh, really good information in there. Ah, it's old stuff, old worn out. Uh, <laughs> well, let's get to the last two, and we're going to hear about uh, Memcan again. And just so everybody knows what I was talking about before, it's actually in the Hebrew text, it's actually there twice. And it's Memcan once, and then it uses – well, I mean if if you're talking in English, it uses an O. So it's Memcan Momcan. Uh, so uh, if you ever get you're a chance – You're talking about the king's advisor for yes. clarification. Yeah. You're talking about the king's advisor. Yep. Okay. Yep. We're getting ready to hear about him again. I'll go ahead and finish out this chapter for us. It's just uh, two remaining verses in the last stanza. And uh, everybody, please try to understand that uh, the stanzas are very important in Hebrew. Uh, Verse 21, this word pleased the king and the princess. And the king did as Mimkan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to to its script and to every people according to their language that every man should be master of his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Rabbi Mike? Actually, it's fascinating. Because whenever the Bible throws something out like that, it's like, well, that's random. No, it's actually telling us there was apparently a real situation going on here. Vashti's rebellion did not happen in a vacuum. It happened in an atmosphere where a lot of men were having situations where they were mar- you know, vast empire, a lot of different languages. You've got, what, 127 uh, provinces? And so you've got a lot of different languages and a lot of intermarriage in there. And apparently it was actually becoming a thing – where women were forcing the uh, speaking of their language within their household. So Vashti's, uh, Vashti's uh, refusal to come before the king was happening in an atmosphere uh, of, rebe- of open rebellion. And so Vashti being deposed was to send out the message that women should turn to their husbands and the husband should be the head of the household, not the way around. Okay. The, um, in the same way, when uh, Jerusalem fell, in 70 CE, actually, the temple was destroyed in 70 CE or AD, if you prefer. Uh, sorry, I get so used to talking with uh, with uh, Jewish groups and such that uh, I just have modified my language accordingly. I don't always swap back. But in 135 AD was when Jerusalem was actually finally destroyed, and so Jerusalem, if you will, is deposed so that all the uh, women, if you will, if you think of uh, the the ecclesia, the church, as being uh, like a woman, like a bride. Here we have one of those instances where it's singular but also plural, and it's to bring all the peoples turning to their true husband, the Lord. But the notice that it says to speak in His language. It's one of the places in Scripture where there's sort of a hint that uh, when the Lord returns, everyone's going to be speaking Hebrew. I think, or. Well, at least we know a pure tongue, correct? Right, So a pure tongue. Uh, a proto-Hebrew, what, maybe. I mean, Hebrew itself has changed over the centuries. Right. Well, I, I think, I think, Rabbi Mike, that that's probably why nobody has to worry about actually pronouncing the name correctly. I think that uh, God instilled safety measures that I think outside of the Tower of Babel uh, – I think that it's probably a dialect or a tongue that nobody 
you know, uses. You can't say it exactly right. It's it's kind of like being the, a guy. You're talking about the original Edenic tongue. Right, right. Okay. Right. Yeah, there's so probably I, be something similar to Akkadian, but Akkadian is very closely related to Hebrew. So I, I would tend to think in terms of a uh, uh, Proto-Hebrew. But Hebrew itself shows so many signs of being a constructed language that I, I do wonder. There, There is, uh, of course, you know, rabbis being rabbis, they, they of course think along this lines. I, I do wonder if Hebrew or an ancestor language to it was the original language. I can't prove it. It's just it's just speculation. I wonder about just from looking at the structure of the language itself. Right. You mean the one that was spoken uh, before the Tower of Babel? Right. Right. Wow. Uh, like uh, well, they call it tricky. Paleo Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 See, Hebrew itself, it, I mean, it would be nice to think that, you know, you've got a language that hasn't changed in centuries. Hebrew went into stasis after the first century. But, I mean, like, for example, I'm learning to read, albeit I still have to double check with lexicons when I hit an unfamiliar word and such. I'm learning to read biblical Hebrew. But reading the uh, Mishnaic Hebrew that was uh, used in Yeshua's time throws me off completely because the spelling conventions are different. There are a lot of imported Greek and Aramaic uh, words imported in there. The language clearly was influenced by its neighbors. And, you know, so when I'm, like, when I'm reading something like in the Talmud or something, I have to go to a translation. I just, I just do not, uh, have not learned why I need to in order to read uh, modern Hebrew in that same sense. Well, if that's the case, you can also expect that you know that it's not going to suddenly start in a stasis. There was a Hebrew when uh, Moses wrote the Torah, um, but we don't we can't say that that Hebrew um, was the precise same language without any changes that say Abraham spoke 500 years earlier. Um, it, 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 languages just do change over time. Well, if that's the case, then we can't say that, you know, going back to Babel, even if Hebrew was the original language, and that's, again, a big if, we can't say that it would have been spoken the same or pronounced the same as even Abraham did, let alone Moses and the prophets and so forth. Um, so when you're dealing with you know, God's holiest name, I think it was given at Mount Sinai. I think that the four letters uh, give us the uh, essence of the pronunciation. I would argue that the true essence of it is found between the letters, and I'll let people dig into that if they want to try to pursue that further. But, um, you know, there, there's, I believe that name would have probably continued unadulterated through the centuries for the purpose, just because it was held so holy. But the, what happened was, um, as we became more inter- intermingled with the nations, we started putting safeguards in place. Um, I actually read and found a translation of, a, of an exorcism scroll by a uh, by some Greek uh, exorcists uh, who were trying to drive out by magic, and they actually, you know, tried to do it by the name of the God of the Hebrews, and they throw in about twelve different possible pronunciations of God's holiest name, and oh, by the way, also throw in Jesus in there. <laughs> You know, I, I'm wondering, okay, is this by the seven sons of Siva? What? But um, the fact is that they didn't know the pronunciation name, but they were trying to get it right for the purposes of essentially doing magic anyway. That's why we became so guarded with it uh, by Yeshua's time. And so the only time the name was spoken was by the high priest on Yom Kippur. Um, so people who came to the temple for Yom Kippur would hear it there, but nobody would speak it outside of that context. Now, if the apostles wanted to reverse that, they could have very easily conveyed the pre- precise pronunciation in Greek letters, because Greek letters have vowels. Hebrew, the original Hebrew doesn't have the vowels. We have to infer the vowels. Greek does. So between the Hebrew and the Greek, if they had wanted to pass that on, they had a perfect opportunity. 
I remember I remember my mentor Louie back in the mid eighties telling me that the real reason why we don't uh take the Lord's name in vain is because there's power in the name of the Lord and uh that uh, he likened it to a, mu- a, ma- a magician who wouldn't go around saying abracadabra everywhere because <laughs> rabbits would be popping up. <laughs> That's that was strangely cabalistic of him. Um, the, 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 uh, many of the uh, rabbis who get into uh, Kabbalah claim that they can get certain miracles to happen reliably by pronouncing different names of God, not only the Tetragrammaton but various other actually longer names that they infer out of uh, the math of, in the Torah and so forth. Um, at that point, I'm like, okay, how does this make you any better than the Persians we were trying to guard God's name from in, in, in the book of Esther? Well, we're rabbis. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're trying to manipulate God by the use of his name, instead of just praying to him and trusting him, you know, it, to me, there, there's a uh, basic problem there. Not all rabbis who are into Kabbalah do that, by the way, and that one is heavily disputed, and uh, uh, it, it's not something that is a part of all Judaism or anything like that, so I don't want to give the wrong perspective. But, yes, there's power in God's name, but the power really is in who God is. The, you know, In Hebrew, shame, name means a person's, you know, how you pronounce, you know, the syllables that you call them by, obviously, but it's also their character, their authority, the basic essence of who they are. The power in God's name is not in the syllables. It is in the essence of who he is and in his authority. That makes sense. It makes sense. (sighs) Interesting. That's a lot to think about. I didn't know that they actually tried. I mean, Louis, I guess he was kind of right in a way, wasn't he? Louis. Oh, the, well, the guy I was telling you that said. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, he, he's right. Um, again, any almost any place where it talks about God's name in Scripture, you can substitute the word authority, and the word and the sentence will almost make more sense. Um, the uh, uh, for example, I think it's in Zechariah it talks about the day that uh, you know God will be one and His name one, and some rabbis take that to mean well that'll mean you know that would be the end of the Trinity or whatever, and it's like no. The first off, uh, the word one echad can also mean uh, singular, unique, um, just like you know, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. What it's actually saying is, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, the Eternal One alone is our God, is what it's actually saying. So in that context, it's saying in the Zechariah's prophecy. It's talking about the day when God will be truly seen to be unique and his authority will stand alone. There won't be any other competing authorities uh, uh, out there. You're not going to have the uh, rebellious divine counsel, to use uh, Dr. Heiser's term. Sorry, I've been reading a lot of Heiser's stuff lately, lately and so it's impacting uh, you know, pretty much my ways of phrasing things. Um, but it's a uh, – uh, the, the pronunciation of the name is not the key issue. I'm careful because I see my master being careful. But the key issue when we when it talks about calling on the name of the Lord, it's calling on God who who he truly is. That's why the apostles could take that phrase from Joel and in the book of Acts they could take it and apply it to Yeshua because Yeshua is the true essence, the true um, incarnation of God, who God truly is. It's God's perfect personality walking among us as a human being where we could relate to him in a way we never could before. And so the and so I I get kind of fed up with people that start trying to do magic by you know using words. It's like I'm sorry, that's 
occultism, plain and simple. That's trying to manipulate supernatural forces by, you know, special formulas or whatever. That's against scripture. That's against Deuteronomy 18. That is a massive violation of Torah. So how can we claim to be following God's word if we're disobeying it in such a basic issue? Yeah, and especially because the real prayer, the real power is in prayer. I mean, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly. uh, it's kind of like uh, trading a penny for a dollar or a, or a million dollar bill. You know, it's just it's kind of funny. My, wife, my wife's been reading this book. And by the way, for anyone that um, wants to uh, get into the issue of spiritual warfare, uh, I do recommend Dr. Ed Murphy's The Handbook for Spiritual Warfare. Don't let the thickness intimidate you. But he makes a really excellent point in there. He points out that... You know, in David's Psalms, he's constantly talking about being around his and en- being surrounded by his enemies. But he rarely goes and rebukes his enemies directly. He is instead praying to God to rescue him uh, from his enemies and to demonstrate God's faithfulness. He, and in the same way, when you're doing spiritual warfare, so many people go around and it's like, you know, use the name of Yeshua and try to cast out, you know, the demon of the achy foot or whatever. And it's like, no, no, no. You know, there are times to do that when you're dealing with something in manifestation. But for the most part, especially if you're not 100% certain what you're dealing with, do what David did. Go to God. He wants to hear from you. He delights in hearing from his people. He wants to have an, to be, have an active interaction in our lives. He doesn't want us to sit there and try to find the magical formula to, to you know, make things happen the way we want to happen. Um, and, I, and that's something that I frankly fell into. I got into you know, uh, casting out you know, every little thing in Yeshua's name, whether I really knew there was something there or not. And God fortunately matured me out of that and, and made me realize, look, come to me. I'm here. I love you. You know, I, I gave my son to die for you. You don't, you know, you need to trust me to be someone that you can come to that will take care of these situations for you. Um, so. Oh, you mean sort of like uh, an automatic thing rather than, than asking for every little thing? Is that pretty much, that's what I got out of that. Well, yeah. Um, is that what there you mean? Is, with, I'll admit, I've gotten a little bit frustrated when I'm in a group setting, I'm listening to prayer, because too often prayer is sitting on Santa's lap. You know, it's like, you know, dear God, please give me a pony and a rocket ship. And, a, and it's like, guys, you know, if you look in the Bible, prayer, first and foremost, is praising God for who he is and not just in a vague, Lord, we thank you for who we are. Now, here's my laundry list of things that I want. But really getting into the heart of who God is, praising he who stretches out the heavens. You know, we today know what that means in a way that David never did. But, you know, praising God who stretched out the heavens, praising God who set the stars in their place, praising God who put the moon at exactly the right distance from the earth to create the right tides to recycle the nutrients so we could all live. You know, praising God who, you know, gave us a universe that's just the visible part of it is 15 billion light years across. You know, these are things that... Today, we've got a better sense of God's greatness, but our prayers are so weak. You know, it's just like, God, thank you so much for who you are. Now, here's what I want. And yeah. you don't want to do that. <laughs> that that's the, you don't want to do that either. You need to be in a constant prayer where you are truly appreciating and, and speaking back to God who he is. Not for his sake. He knows who he is, but for yours, you know, to, to help you understand who God is, to help you commune with the divine. That's what prayer is supposed to be. It's sharing all of ourselves with him, sharing our wonder at God. Yes, sharing our hurts. Yes, sharing our needs. Yes, sharing our joys. Yes, sharing our blessings. 
sharing our, you know, just our thoughts. God, prayer for us is supposed to be a communion with the Most High, not just a laundry list of things to give to the genie in the bottle when we let him out. Right, because he already know what he he knows what we need. I mean, he knows exactly. what we want too. Exactly. And sometimes, yeah, he wants us to come and keep coming because you know, just like with the uh, parable of the uh, widow and the unjust judge, you know, she just kept on badgering him till she got what she wanted, and he's like, "Look, I don't care about men. I don't fear God. But if this woman keeps coming to me, I'm going to go nuts. So I will give her what she wants, so she will go away." And then Yeshua says, "How much more will your Father in heaven, who loves you, reward?" diligence and coming back to him with what you were really praying for so there is a place for bringing god our requests but we have to also bring god all of ourselves and receive all of who he is in return right i mean that's uh yeah that's a huge thing um to come to come to the point where we just lay it out all on the line because god knows who we are he knows what we are so mm-hmm. we might as well just fess up and be real about it, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's one of the reasons I do uh, like the Jewish liturgical prayers because even the requests are couched in the form of a praise. And, you know, it, it's not like I have to have the the guide there to do it in the exact prescribed fashion or anything like that. The rabbis would even say that, you know, if that's all you're doing, then you're not really praying. But it just to get into the habit of any time you bring God a request to figure out, okay, how can I put this in a form of a praise? Because as we praise God and as our gratitude grows, then we actually draw closer to him than if we're, you know, standing off saying, well, I want this, you know, go, and I'm not going to take it if you don't give it to me, you know, that kind of thing. So what about um, um what about wrestling God all night and then demanding a blessing before we let him go? Yeah, that, careful. It, it, can we do that too? That. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a place for that. Just be careful. God will dislocate your hip once in a while. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you'll probably walk lame for the rest of your life, but you'll get that blessing, right? I mean, I don't exactly. Know. <laughs> exactly. And, and, I mean, I've had, I've been through those kind of dark periods where, you know, I just, you know, was you know, at my wit's end, I was in way over at my head. I told you about uh, dealing with uh, people with the MPD thing and finding out what that was about and, and uh, you know, just sort of stumbling into the whole thing and just being absolutely uh, overwhelmed by it all and just having that prayer where it's like, God, I'm not leaving until you tell me you're with me because I'm scared to death here. And, and, you know, God came back and basically said, look, how far are you willing to go? I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, I don't have 40 years to train you in the desert. I've got to give you boot camp, and it's not going to be fun. I'm like, Amen. Okay, what, you're God, whatever you want. And no, it wasn't fun. Um, I'm thankfully, I think, coming sort of to the end of a uh, maturing process. Um, I've been the last few months looking back and looking at a lot of mistakes and you know trying to figure out how to uh, do right by the people I've wronged in my life and, and so forth. But yeah, God will humble you in a situation like that but it's far better to you know have his blessing even if you walk with a limp after that oh yeah oh yeah and have a nation named after you that would be cool Mm -hmm. the nation of johnny (laughs) (laughs) it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen yeah (laughs) that would be cool though (laughs) well you know in hebrew your name yochanan means uh, grace of god right nice Nice. 
Um, boy, we could just go right. We could just segue with that, but I'll just like hit the brakes. <laughs> I guess we better get back to Esther before I yeah, go off. Uh, I'm sorry for. Uh, I'm for, sorry for the. Uh, <laughs> oh, I just wanted to take us off the rails there. <laughs> er, better no, 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 no. Let's get back to. Uh, we were going to trade verses and commentaries here for a while, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Do you want you just linger in uh, verse, in chapter one a bit, or uh, Matthew? Do you, uh, do you have more you want to go back and forth on chapter one, or do you want to continue through chapter two and uh, get uh, so we hit Esther tonight? How do you want to handle that? Whatever's pleasing to you, Rabbi Mike. Um, I can go wherever we want to go. Uh, it's uh, you know, there's I I think that it's pointless to assume that 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 we can cover the whole thing. So uh, whatever's pleasing to you. Uh, it's just fine with me. Um, okay, well, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a guy where it's like, um, especially in an, you know, if I'm sitting down with people and we can pull out paper and uh, pull out the Hebrew and that kind of bit, um, I think I think we can definitely we could linger over the names and such. Uh, but since we're in an audio medium, why don't we sort of continue forward with it? Um, and, uh, you know, we can toss out, uh, toss out the nuggets and hopefully people who are hearing this will be intrigued to dig into themselves, but, um, so we don't lose people because like you and I, it's like, you know, you and I can talk about, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, what, what was his name? Uh, uh, Memukan, and I can see exactly mm-hmm. here in my uh, art scroll where it's got the way it's spelled and then the way it's pronounced, and uh, mm-hmm. the the little corrections rabbis did going, okay, why is that off and that kind of thing? But not everyone else has that in front of them. Um, so uh, let's, I mean, in part, this progressed then. Exactly. I, I, let's not bog down in stuff that people aren't going to be hey. a follow because they can't see what we're seeing. So, hey man, uh, we get to remember next. Uh, let's All go right. first. First stanza in chapter two, uh, my favorite, by the way. After Alrighty. these things, when the anger of King Azazurus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be brought or sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the providences of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, and to the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. All right. I was just looking at... There it is. There we are. Sorry, I was double-checking uh, one of my notes here on that. It's kind of interesting. The uh, The word uh, for the citadel uh, in Susa is Habira. Uh, uh, which the only other place it really appears, it's, it appears referring to uh, uh, Susa or Shushan, but it also refers to the temple in First uh, Chronicles twenty nine uh, one and uh, uh, nineteen. Uh, probably because uh, Ezra either wrote or uh, had commissioned the writing of First uh, uh, and Second Chronicles to refamiliarize Jews who had been who were coming back from the exile to know their history. And, but he makes this interesting – he uses that word to describe the temple. And so in a, in a, as we're looking at this, you know, 
let's just face it the um the, the historical uh Ahasuerus was a jerk he this was the guy who insisted his engineers build a uh, uh bridge across the Hellespont that's a little strip of sea that uh joins the uh, Mediterranean with the Black Sea and uh, even though they told him it couldn't be done and so they built it. The sea promptly destroyed it, and so he had the engineers killed and gave the th- the sea forty lashes for disobeying him. This was not a stable guy, and that's why he seems to be all over the map in Esther. Nevertheless, just like Pharaoh in um, uh, in Joseph's story, he's the king over the whole world, so he becomes sort of a symbolic stand-in for God, standing in his temple in his citadel. Um, that and. If indeed Vashti becomes a sort of type of uh, faithless Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that had to be punished and destroyed, then this then becomes sort of the heavenly tabernacle that we are told about in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Revelation. Um, But you've got now the uh, introduction of Mordecai. We're told Mordecai is a Benjamite. Um, He's uh, possibly a descendant of uh, King Saul. Which makes it very interesting because we find out later that uh, Haman is an Agagite, and uh, King Agag was of the line of Amalek. Amalek was a bandit lord who attacked Israel the instant we came out of Egypt in the Exodus. He actually attacked the old and the infirm, basically raiding for uh, goods and such. Uh, this continued to be a pattern. God told Saul to go and finish the war, or end it, by destroying uh, Amalek's line. He goes to King Agag, but Agag offers him money and herds and everything else. So Saul decides to spare him for a bit until Samuel shows up. And Samuel's not super pleased about this and uh, put Agag to death himself, uh, told Saul that because Saul had disobeyed, his kingdom would not be established forever. But apparently, one of uh, Agag, as a result of this delay, one of Agag's sons escaped. We actually find him referenced uh, later in the story of David. Um, I'll look up chapter and verse if anyone wants to uh, see it. And this, so we find out when we look at Haman, he's actually an Agagite, and therefore he is, he's like a loose end that Saul of the tribe of Benjamin did not tie up, and that therefore is coming back to haunt the Jewish people. So when we're looking at uh, Mordecai versus Haman, it is also almost a, it's like Mordecai is trying to put right King Saul's sin, and having to put right King Saul's sin and deal with the consequences of King Saul's sin. Uh, let's hear at this point, what, seven, uh, about 600 years later. Um, and it, just because I like to tie, continue to tie it in, there's another Benjamite who is also named Shaul, or Saul, who also put uh, King Saul's uh, sin right, and that would be, of course, the Apostle Paul, who, like Saul, started off persecuting David or in Saul's case, in uh, Paul's case, he started off persecuting the son of David. But unlike Saul, repented of it when he was confronted. Saul continued to harass and to hunt David down, but uh, Saul, uh, aka Paul, when he was confronted, when he realized his sin, actually turned and repented of it. And from that, we learn that even some God is not only interested in redeeming individuals, he wants to redeem whole family lines. He wants to redeem whole nations, because all the nations went astray at Babel. And God's not just interested in the peoples. He wants people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation so that there's a remnant of each nation that redeems, if you will, the line and puts right the sins of the past. 
And so that means each of us coming, whatever nation we come from, America, you know, I've got ancestors that come from England, I've possibly got some Polish ancestors, whatever. All of us have a lineage. All of us have uh, family sins and such. It is not enough for us to repent of things that we personally have done. We need to also make sure that we're not carrying out the sins of the past, and indeed we're trying to repair the sins of the past as much as possible, and as much as God gives us the ability to. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, this, what I like to talk about right here, Rabbi, is, uh, you know, I, I I don't think that everybody realizes the ramifications of, of this phrase being here about the king remembering. I mean, when you bring that word up uh, in the Hebrew, uh, mm-hmm. very critically important. You know, God remembered Noah. Right. And the next time it's in the Bible, uh, he remembers his covenant. Right. And then the next time it's in the Bible, it turns into the everlasting covenant. And then mm-hmm. the next time, God remembers Abraham. And then the next one, God remembers Rachel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that, that phrase there, uh, you know, and that situation where all of a sudden uh, somebody's remembered, you know, that's, exactly. that's such a. Such a very important key phrase there that, you mm-hmm. know, literally speaking, you know, if you've heard that phrase before and, and, and how important it is when God decides to remember you. Right. Uh, <laughs> very important indeed. Uh, well, it, so it, I, Zakhar does not mean, you know, like when it says God remembered Noah, I always like to phrase it that it wasn't like God, you know, a few months later was going around, oh, t- t- Noah! You know, God remembered Noah. <laughs> yeah. Whoops, I forgot, totally forgot, but now I remember Noah means you don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it! I knew I forgot something. It's like that Bill Cosby, uh, Bill Cosby, the way he played noise. Like, uh, I want you to build an ark, and, and Noah goes, "All right." He goes, "I want you to build it three hundred cubits by cubits by cubits by," and Noah goes. And, right. What's a Cuban? And God goes, well, uh, let me see here. I used to know what a Cuban is. And, uh, well, never mind that. <laughs> exactly. But you know, that's the thing. It's like you know, whenever the Bible says so-and-so remembered, what it really means is he didn't forget. And so this is telling us that uh, Ahasuerus did not forget what Vashi had done. He did not forget. He did not forgive. He did not, you know, a few weeks later, it, it, Xerxes was not like I said, he's not the most stable person. He was prone to just wild impulse, but this is saying that in this particular case, he didn't forget what Bashia did. He didn't forgive. He was not letting her come back as queen. He was leaving her deposed. Um which implies by the way he did not kill Vashti. He simply set her aside from from the royal grandeur. Um in the same way that God it's not like God, you know, one day wakes up, oh right, I forgot about Michael. You know, now I remember it. It's that he never forgets us. He always oh. remembers us. He always has us before his eyes. Oh, so it just—it's not like a thought came back to his head. It's just re- telling us that yes, he is thinking of somebody all the time. Exactly, exactly. As a matter of oh, fact, there's a uh, uh, passage in uh, uh, Deuteronomy. Was it 25? I think I was looking this up last night, sort of prepping uh, for coming on tonight. Uh, let's see here. Here we go. Jeremiah uh, 25, uh, verse 17, Remember, Zachar, what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. And then it and it goes through and describes what he did and so forth. And then it says, You will, shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. You know, it's interesting. Okay, you, uh, you're to blot out his name, but you can't forget him either. 
Um, and so in the um, that's actually the passage, by the way, the rabbis used as uh, evidence that Esther was uh, indeed part of the canon, even though God's name wasn't spoken outright. Esther's always been uh, Esther's place in the canon has always been um, uh, debated. Martin Luther wanted to exclude it uh, partly because it didn't have the name of God, and partly because he thought it was too Jewish. Um, there were uh, rabbis as late as the third and fourth century that were debating over whether Esther was really part of the canon or not. Uh, but the majority looked at this verse like, look, this is talking about the end of the battle with Amalek and Amalek's seed. Therefore, we must remember this, so this must have a place in the canon where, we'll be, where it will be preserved and passed down for all time. That's also why we added a whole new feast, Purim, to celebrate the events. Not so that we wake up one day and go, oh, right, that, but so that we never forget. Um, can I ask you a question? What was – it sound I, – I listened, I listened to the Bible, and anyway, near the end of uh, Esther, it sounded like they had cast lots to find out um, – what the deal was, and that Purim was the lot, but that's not. I mean, I'm listening to King James, obviously, and is that is per? Am I totally lost on that? What is? What's that about? What's the lot? Well, poor is uh, actually a Persian word. It's a Persian loan word, and it does mean lot. You know, like um, like casting lots. Yeah, yeah. It's basically you you know put a bunch of. Uh, uh, stones in a bag and like all of them will be black except for the one the white one and so for example when they're trying to decide when Haman's trying to decide what month to do this you know they would like pull out month number one uh i'm trying to remember let's hear they would start off like tishri and you know and, and uh, like go through the months and then when the white one came out it's like okay now we're gonna do this um in uh this month and then they did same thing with the day and so forth uh they did something similar uh in the book of Jonah, when they're trying to find out, okay, whose fault is it that the storm has hit? All right, everyone reach into this bag, pull out a lot until we find out, until the uh, guilty man is marked. Right. Uh, it's it's done in a positive sense in the uh, New Testament book of Acts, where they're trying to replace Judas. And so they follow human wisdom as far as they possibly can. They've got two candidates that have been there from the beginning. They've heard all of Yeshua's words. They can be proper witnesses to his resurrection. And they can't... Human wisdom at that point has reached its limit. They can't decide which one would be the better candidate. So at that point, uh, there's actually a proverb that says the lot is in the lap of the Lord. And they, at that point, they say, okay, God, we're going to cast lots for this. You decide. Um, you know, it's not lots are not to be used for every little thing. It's not like we should use them in criminal justice to decide who the guilty party is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's not the point. But there is, you do. God expects us to use human wisdom to the point that it it comes to its limit. He has given us His Word to shape our wisdom. That's why we're supposed to constantly be reading His Word. He's given us His Spirit to give us a gift of wisdom. But there are points at which it's just like, okay, I cannot decide which path is better, which person is better, or whatever, and then there is the lot as the final thing there. Um, and so Purim is just Purim, which is just the plural of lot, so it's lots. Um, and it wasn't that the Jews cast lots to pick the dates, it's that Haman did. But, you know, it, so picking, that, picking the name Purim as the festival name was in a way sort of mocking Haman, you know, saying, well, you picked lots for your own death, um, so we will, you know, name it lots for uh, the rest of time here. It's kind of like a polemic against Haman, sort of. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's there's a lot that's uh, polemic. As, as a matter of fact, um, 
sadly, I'm going to, I'm going to end up missing my uh, uh, synagogue's uh, Purim festival uh, tomorrow night. Uh, we're going to do it after sundown. Jewish days begin at sundown. It's technically on Sunday, but since people have to come from a distance, we're sort of combining it with uh, the end of our Shabbat service. But I'm going to be missing it because we've got someone who's in our synagogue who's actually uh, sick uh, with uh, cancer. And may not make out the year, and they've asked me to come to a family event, um, and so I'm going to sort of represent the synagogue with them. But Perm is fun because we read the whole book of Esther word by word, and every time you get to Mordecai's name, you cheer. And every time oh, you get cool. to Esther's name, you go, ah. Oh. And every time you get to Haman's name, you shout and stamp and rattle these grogger things to try to blot out his name. You know, it's very, it's very much uh, sort of ceremonial cheering. And it gets to be really funny when it, you get to parts where it's like, and then Haman, and everyone boos. Uh. Hey, Mordecai. And it's like, hey, yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> what about the Haman cookies? Do you bring the Haman cookies too? Hamantashen. Yes, Hamantashen. Those are like good. Trifold they're they're very tasty. Oh yeah, baby! Tasty. I want a whole bag and of them Haman cookies. <laughs> there, there's one thing we don't do. It, it is traditional to uh, drink yourself uh, blind on a Purim. Oh yeah, we don't do that because a that's against New Testament. B most of us have to drive home. <laughs> that would just be bad. In the Orthodox community, they can get away with it because everyone lives within a five minute walk of synagogue, so they can stagger on home when they're done. Um, and I actually got a chance to participate at. Uh, Beth Jacobs uh, Perm Festival a couple years ago. And Beth Jacobs an Orthodox uh, synagogue, and I sat there and watched every rabbi gets blitzed, and he was hilarious. Um, and the reason is because wine ends up being a recurring theme in the story. If you, as we go through, we're going to see wine coming up over and over again. You know, it's a wine feast that the king is having. Having Vashti uh, uh, decides to disobey him. There's wine being served when Esther's trying to get the king in a position where he'll hear her, and, and so forth. So. Uh, you know, me and Matthew Miller don't have a problem with wine unless, you know, I mean, if you're an alcoholic, it's bad. You stay exactly. away from it. But. Right, Matt? Wait, what? Matthew? I mean, Amen. Amen. God made wine to gladden the hearts of men, but like yeah. any gift God gives, we have this tendency to turn it into a curse. Oh, tell me. So moderation. <laughs> yeah, we have a tendency to just twist it till it's just <laughs> evil, my friend. <laughs> Just about anything you can think of, we seem to overdo. There's people that die from drinking milk, overdose Mm. on milk. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, food. I mean, you know, look how many people are eating themselves to death in this country. And that doesn't mean that we should stop eating food at all. You know, know, it's kind of hard to get over the withdrawal on food. Yeah. Going cold turkey on food will kill you, you know? It's just. <laughs> I am hopelessly addicted to air, too. I just. I tried to stop once. Man, but, I'm telling uh, you. I'm telling you, man. I just can't seem to beat it, man. I need to go into rehab. <laughs> Every time I turn around, I'm just sucking in another breath. It's the thing. <laughs> I know I totally suck anyway. So, but. Uh... <laughs> okay. Okay. So now we now we get we've got the Mordecai, all right? We got we got Mordecai, and you know we we're looking at him as sort of a uh, messianic figure in this whole thing. Now Mordecai is bringing up Esther; he's preparing her and he's shaping her so that. And when this uh, when this um, call goes out to bring to find the king a good replacement bride, Mordecai is, is the one who's sort of behind Esther. I don't know if it was his first choice for her to go. The indication is that she was, it, there wasn't much a whole, there wasn't a whole lot of choice when the king's horsemen showed up and said, "You, you're coming with us." But he definitely impacted her 
in a major way, and he's the driving force behind pretty much everything she does in the story. Just like Yeshua is the one who's prepared us and raised up us up, even before we know before we know what our purpose is, and he's the one who is the driving force in our lives. Amen to that. Amen to that. Amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the next stanza. Uh, this is good stuff. Uh, this is when you find out about Esther and her original name. This is good stuff. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, if anybody's got lost, I'm going to uh, just read the next three verses. Now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jehokanah, king of Judah, whom ba- Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadessah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now, the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Yep. All right. You want to go ahead and uh, and explain the translations of the names there, or you want me to take that? Oh, go go right ahead, Rabbi. Okay, Hadassah comes from Hadass, which uh, actually refers to the myrtle tree. Um, it's not an uncommon Jewish name. Esther is the interesting one, though, because Esther in uh, most of the Middle Eastern languages would be related actually to Ishtar, Astarte, Aster, all of which means star. But in Hebrew, it comes from Satar, which means to hide, and so Esther actually means something hidden. And indeed, it, it, and so it's, it, we Jews love our uh, our wordplay. So it, you know, when they pick this name for her to hide her Jewish heritage behind, they're they're even you know sort of showcasing the fact that you know yes, there was something hidden here, and that's that's the key thing is that Esther's whole heritage is completely hidden through the rest of the story until the very end when she reveals it to the king. Now, there are a couple different ways of looking at this. Uh, One is uh, the church actually has a Jewish heritage. It has tried very hard to hide, since, especially since the 4th century. Um, When the uh, Nicene Council got together, they were mostly dealing with the issue of Yeshua's divinity. Uh, They were also trying to make sure – they were trying to hammer out the edges of the canon. Most books were already agreed on. There were a few like uh, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, uh, Hebrews, um, Jude, and in some places Revelation that were disputed. So we're trying to hammer out the uh, and the edges of that. But what a lot of people don't realize, you can find this out in Eusebius's histories, is that they also sent out a couple of letters at the end that basically outlawed being Jewish and being a Christian. Um, and as a matter of fact, you can actually go and find a you know uh, the kinds of oaths Jews who wanted to come worship a Jewish king who had been prophesied by Jewish. Uh, prophets in the Jewish language to the Jewish people who then sent out Jewish disciples to the whole world were told that they themselves couldn't be Jewish. And so a lot – and so the church tried to hide its uh, Jewish heritage. So if you look at Esther as a, um, uh, as a picture of the church, the church also has a hidden Jewish heritage which, interestingly enough, at the end of Esther's story is revealed. And now in these days, um, especially among evangelical churches, the, there's a, a lessened hostility between Christians and Jews, and more Christians are wanting to find out what does this mean that – 
you know, this religion was originally Jewish. What does it mean that my Messiah is Jewish? What does it mean that Jesus Christ was Jewish? You know, how, how should that affect the way I look at it? What are these feasts about? You know, not trying to, not being under the law per se, not saying, oh no, I haven't kept Passover, I'm not saved or anything like that, but just going, you know, I want to learn more about this. And in the process, you're seeing Christians draw closer, back closer again to the Jewish people. But there's also another way of looking at this. Like I said, the church um, rejected its own Jewish members. It actually uh, forced Jews to repudiate not only Jewish practices, but their very Jewishness in order to be considered part of the church and considered saved. And a lot of uh, Jews went underground, if you will, in the church. I, I, every, every time I go speaking in a church, I'm approached by one or more people that come to me and say, hey, you know what? My mom's Jewish. I'm like, well, you realize that means you're a Jew. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to do anything about it or not, you're a Jew. Oh, really? Yeah, really. And I, one of the things that is coming out with the Messianic movement is people and Jews realizing, hey, you know what? I don't have to choose between a Jewish Messiah and being Jewish myself. That, that's not a, something I'm having to make. And so Esther might be a type of the church as a whole. It might be a type of the Jewish remnant that Paul talks about in Romans 11 especially. And I'm going to leave open the question about which it is, because it looks like we're going to have a lot more time to uh, kick this around. I'm just going to sort of set that out in people's minds, and let's see as the story weaves which one of these possibilities uh, is true, or if they're both true in a, in a slightly different way. A type can have a uh, breadth of meaning that's more than just you know one tiny little element. So uh, I think that's going to be interesting as we uh, continue on with Esther's story, sort of seeing that. Wow. Amen to that. Shall I continue? Please. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'll just take it to verse 12. So it came about when the command and the decree of the king was heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace, to the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now, the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make her own people or her kindred, or Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. And Lord never leaves us. <laughs> he never abandons us. He's always there with us, even if uh, uh, we don't uh, always see his hand directly. Yeah, let's see here. I was just looking up because I hadn't thought to uh, look up if uh, Haggai's name had a, a significance before, and I'm not seeing it there. It does seem look like it's got a couple of variant spellings, um, but I've not delved into his name before. It just now occurred to me to uh, wonder about that. Any thoughts on that one, Matthew? Oh, you can you can see, you know, even as you have said, the Lord does not leave us. You can see it all over that. Now, everybody does need to take special notice of what's going on here. Um, at this point in time, all of the young virgins had been gathered together, and yet this one was separated out and was given seven maidens at her disposal. Mm-hmm. So, even inside this situation. The Lord separated out his own from the very beginning, Uh, Mm -hmm. and we have all kinds of hints and shadows of that in the New Testament as well, that God has elected us 
uh, he has uh, from you know the foundations of the earth uh, we were uh, predestined in some translations it says but uh, you know a lot of people forget that rabbi mike they they think that they're just well they've just been abandoned and uh, that they're just left out in the wings but not only uh, will you be taken care of on top of that once you come into the uh, king's harem shall we say mm-hmm. uh, he takes explicit care of you and not only that we have a shape a shape and a shadow here of the seven spirits that greet us in the book of revelation the seven spirit of god so um what a wonderful thing that yeah. is what what Very a good. wonderful thing that is um so it, it it's just a marvelous thing uh, these verses that I just read here, you know, not very many, but boy, how important they are in the end of the matter. That's for sure. That's right. That's right. Shall I continue then? Please do. Please do. I think you hit everything that I could possibly could have on that. Okay. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Azurus, after the end of 12 months – under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil, myrrh, and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the heron to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shazagaz, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the concubines. He would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Mm-hmm. Boy, how important those verses are. Uh, yeah. You know, not that I want to open a, a can of worms or anything, but ladies and gentlemen, I, I know that lots of people like to divide and conquer over this issue of losing your salvation. But when you look at Esther and what is to come and what has already been accomplished uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ… Once you realize exactly what's being said here, because there's a whole lot being said, uh, you understand that the young lady uh, would go into the king overnight. And from that point, she was taken to the place of his concubines. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, she was deserted or anything like that. But at a special time in the future… She could only be brought forth if she was called by name, and praise be the living God, that there shall come a time when we shall have a new name. Amen? Amen. You know, it occurs to me, you know, what Yeshua said, that many are called but few are chosen. There were many young women who were called that that came to the king, but only a few were actually uh, chosen by him and went from the status of just being concubines, having been with the king and being 
uh, whoops, one sec. Sorry, I, was, I heard some thunder outside. I was checking the weather, and I just got sound and uh, music in my earphones. I don't know if that came through. Um, but the uh, many were uh, called by the king, but only a few were chosen to go beyond the status of being concubines to becoming full wives. And here, I guess, real quick explanation for those not familiar with Middle Eastern customs. Okay, A concubine was basically a secondary wife. She did not have all the rights, privileges, and prestige of uh, a primary wife. Just like you know, Hagar was uh, Sarah's servant. She became a secondary wife for the express purpose of getting Abraham a son. But she was still a servant to Sarah, and she had the right to punish Hagar and even to cast her out of the house um, if uh, she so wanted. Same thing with these concubines. Or like Solomon, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. The concubines were probably women that he was with once and that he would then take care of for the rest of their days, but that he they weren't going to be coming back together as we think of as a husband-wife relationship. It could be a very lonely thing. That's one of the reasons why they put eunuchs over the concubines. So when it talks about you know Esther going and having her turn with the king, you know, it, a lot of people have seen one night with the king, and they think, you know, oh, she was reading him a love story about Jacob and Rachel or something like that. No, there was stuff, there was definitely some sexual stuff going on. And guys, just to warn you, I'm seeing some lightning outside my window, and the power around here is a bit finicky. So if I drop out of sight very suddenly, it's just the power died, and my uh, router suddenly stopped working. Um, as a matter of fact, I may need to sign off for the sake of uh, sparing my router in just a minute. Um, well, well, we've been and, going on two hours here now anyway, Yeah, uh, Rabbi Mike. Um, well, I would like to throw this in, though, if I may. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you might want to take note of the dire ramifications with what Absalom done because now uh, now it's really explained to you just exactly what Absalom done. Uh, you need to understand that uh, uh, it was a great tactical move for him to – well, he did a very dastardly thing. He took his father's uh, concubines and took them up on the roof and uh, – mm-hmm. And in a false way, uh, he called them. Uh, this is a very dastardly thing to do. Uh, and of course, that's exactly what the beast uh, tries to do again, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. uh, in the end game of things. But uh, it has been two hours, and here it's awfully late for me. I don't live <laughs> out on <laughs> the West Coast. Uh, so, Johnny? Yeah, it's midnight uh, for me. So, Right. Right, yeah, that's that's what it is for me, midnight, and I do have to get up tomorrow. I do have a family that is uh, depending upon me. Uh, All so right. Tonight, well, hey, you know what? Um, we've got we've barely scratched the surface, even though we've covered a lot of really valuable ground here, and uh, so uh, we are going to have to continue this uh, series. Uh, so uh, we're going to have to drag uh, both of you guys back here um, at a future oh, date. ASAP, and, uh, you know, <laughs> make you slaves to the Iron Show. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> Willing servants, we'll do it that way. All right. Hey, I like that. I like that. That sounds great. And that's been really great. Okay, so we'll just, uh, everybody remember where we left off. You know, chew over what uh, you've heard in this session and prepare yourselves for the next time we come back to Hidden Prophecies in the Book of Esther. Uh, Matthew Miller, 
I just want to. I just want to say, Matthew, would you, uh, Matthew, would you or Johnny, uh, let's end off with a word of prayer before we before we do the final oh, little, uh, closing and all that. I, I that sounds so nice. Pass without that. <laughs> uh, all right. That um, I second that. As a matter of fact. Oh uh, yeah! Most appropriately, demand that Paul be the one to finish us out in prayer. We demand. have not heard from Paul Kennedy. Paul, are you there? Oh! <laughs> oh man! Come on, we, Paul. We hear snoring. <laughs> we have. On, ne- we have neglected Paul during this session. He has been the silent partner. We're on sorry, the Iron Paul. Show. Please come back. <laughs> well. I'm not very good at public prayers. I I know I could lead us, you know, through the Lord's Prayer, which uh, I know that one real good. But uh, do it, Johnny. That's that's (laughs) there. There is no better cherry on top than the Lord's Prayer. There, there, there just is none. All right, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we would forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the honor and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Amen and amen. Hey, had a blast, guys. I really did. Me too. It was a blessing. It's been Thank real. Thanks so for inviting me along. All right. And so I must say goodbye for this Iron Show session. Oh, boys, it's been so nice. I only have one more thing to add. What's up? Thank you for joining us in Iron Show we're going to be back. We're going to bring these boys back in here uh, very soon, as soon as possible. So look for more of this action as we continue in the Book of Esther. I'd like to all, thank all my friends out there. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Future. I'd like to thank Peter Goodgame. I'd like to thank uh, the guys at Canary Cry Radio, Gonzo Basil. I'd like to thank all my friends on Facebook. I'd like to thank everyone who's downloaded this session on from ironshow.com. And we're also available at iTunes, all you podcaster listeners out there. We've got Johnny in your ear right now. Johnny loves you. I'd like to thank Bruce Collins for nothing. I'm too busy to be on the Iron Show. <laughs> I'd like to thank producer Rick on the Fringe Radio Network for making this broadcast possible. Going out across all manner of connections on the internet, live on smartphones, live on the internet, live on telephones, and also available for download at ironshow.com and on the Fringe Radio Network. That's fringeradionetwork.com. All right.